So I did forget one thing. I knew I was going to forget one thing. Uh, hey, if you're interested in Helpless in Journey Kids Ministry, there's a card that you got when you came in, and you can fill that out. Uh, in in uh, the words of Jono, if you like kids and you can pass a background check, we, we could use your help. So uh, lots of different ways. It's not like, do I have to teach the lesson? Not necessarily if that's not your thing. So a lot of different ways you can plug in to Journey Kids Ministry. If you're interested, fill that out and uh, drop it in the bucket at the end of the service. Okay, so we, we spent the last series uh, talking about how brave I am when it comes to scary things, and uh, you may have to go back and listen to it uh, if you weren't here, but we thought since we spent a month on scary, we'd spend a month on brave. We just like to cover all our bases, so we're kicking off a brand new series today, and it's called Brave, uh, and it's... It's, it's a really old story. It's like 2,500 years old. And some of you are going to be real familiar with it. It's in the Old Testament. And some of you, it'll be totally new, or at least aspects of it will be totally new. Maybe some things that you haven't heard. But it's a great story. It's a fascinating story. Um, it's filled with conflict and heroism and tragedy and comedy, or if not comedy, at least a lot of irony all throughout this particular story. It's just an incredible, incredible story. And I'm, if you don't know, I'm the father of three daughters, so I like stories with, with strong women role models, and that's what this has. It, it has a strong female hero in the story. And um, uh, as you read it, you're going to see her kind of begin to rise up. It's, it's the, one of only two books in the, in the Bible named for women. This one is the book of Esther. And it's largely about a woman by the name of Esther. Now, she wasn't always brave. Uh, that's what I like about the Bible. It doesn't create like these one-dimensional plastic characters but it, it shows us that like she, she had weaknesses, she had some insecurity, and, and she had to find a way to be brave. So she's like all of us. None of us are brave all the time, but sometimes we just have to step up. We, we have to take a stand, and that's what we see in the life of, of this female hero, Esther. So as we're beginning this, the study, I just kind of want to set up the story today give you some background, help you understand what we're stepping into, because this story happens in a specific time period. It happens in a specific place, and all of that is real important to being able to understand the story, all right? And, and if, let me give you the spoiler alert. The, the setting is bad. Like, it's, it's bad. A lot of stories open up and like everything's peaceful and, and beautiful and, and, and wonderful. And, you know, it's a little town in a quiet village. It's like Beauty and the Beast, like this. Everybody's singing. Esther's not a musical, all right? Nobody's going to dance. Nobody's going to sing a song. It doesn't open up in this beautiful, nice little place. Right out of the gate, this whole story's messed up. It happens around the time of 483 B.C., so about 500 years, give or take, before Jesus arrives, and we celebrate Christmas in a, in a few weeks, about 500 years before that, this particular story happens. And it happens in the Middle East. We, I, I, we've got a map here, and hopefully you can tell. It happens in a place called Susa, which is just north of 
the Persian Gulf. Maybe we don't have a map, all right? Uh, it ha- it's just north of the Persian Gulf. As a matter of fact, if you, if you lay over modern-day map, it's right sort of along the border of Iraq and Iran. It's kind of into Iran, but it's right along the border of Iraq and Iran, which is strange that we've got a Jewish story told in Susa. That's just not where they're supposed to be. So how did they get there? Quick background. God's people disobey, 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 and then eventually, a hundred years before our story, before this story, A hundred years before this story, the Babylonians capture them and carry them away as captives to what was Babylon. Fifty years later, the Persians overtake the Babylonians. So they're all in the same little area. Now the Persians are in charge. And some of the Jewish people begin to go back because the Persians didn't really have a beef with the Jewish people. And they said, if you want to go home, go home. And so some of them go home. They start coming back to Jerusalem and there are books of the Bible about this. But some of them stayed there in Persia. And so that's where our story takes place. It takes place in this little area in the world. And these people never went back to Jerusalem. They had actually never lived in Jerusalem. right? Even though they thought of Jerusalem as their home, because it represented their culture and their religion and their beliefs, they had not gone back to settle in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, they probably had never even lived in Jerusalem. This was home for them, but it, it didn't really feel like home home because all of the culture and uh, all of the religion was very different from what they had experienced. As a matter of fact, their customs, their beliefs weren't even accepted. They were rejected in this particular area of the world. Now, the leader of the Persians at this time is a guy by the name of Xerxes. Uh, And and that's how the story opens. This is Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. I don't know how much you remember about your ancient history classes. Probably you're like me and you remember nothing about them. So let me catch you up. This is, he was called Xerxes the Great. Um, if you are familiar with or if you watch the movie 300 about the Spartans, Xerxes, this Xerxes, is the king that led the Persian army against the Spartans at Thermopylae, where they made that big stand, and then they all died, so the stand didn't really accomplish a whole much, a whole lot. But nonetheless, this is that Xerxes. He didn't dress the way he does in the movies, but they, they kind of dressed him weird in the movies. Uh, when Esther takes place, he's probably getting ready for that battle. He's probably getting his armies ready. He's getting his resources ready, because Xerxes wanted to overtake the entire Greek world. Like he was taking over everything, just marching through, taking care of everything, killing everybody. Aside from that, Xerxes is a despicable person. I mean, if you read anything about him, who he was, what his history was like, he's absolutely ruthless, arrogant, narcissistic. Uh, he thought of himself as a god. One of the titles he had was King of Kings. He thought he was a God. He was a despicable human being. He was a bad dude. As a matter of fact, chapters 1 and 2 of Esther, 
I mean, if you read it objectively, it's filled with some of the basest, worst examples of misogyny you're ever going to find anywhere. Okay? And again, as a father of three daughters, husband to one wife, this bothers me. It is filled with the most male-dominated, male-chauvinistic culture you're going to find anywhere. It is a bad setting. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that in order to condone it. The Bible's not saying, hey, this is, this is a, the way things ought to be. <laughs> so, guys, don't say that when you go home today. That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible presents this real environment, this real setting to say, man, things are awful back then. Things are terrible. This was a bad place. Now, in chapter 1, I'll give you an example. Xerxes has been partying it up. For a long time. As a matter of fact, he's drunk. All his buddies are drunk. It's like a big frat party going on in the palace. They're, they're all drunk out of their mind. And Xerxes says, I want the queen, her name was Vashti, I want the queen to put on her crown and come let all of us drunk guys look at her. Uh, verse 11, somewhere around there says, she was lovely to look at. Right, this is a good looking woman. She's a good-looking woman. Xerxes is totally drunk out of his mind. All of his buddies are drunk. And he says, this is what I want. I want my wife to come out here, put a crown on her head, and model in front of all of us and let us ogle her and make cat calls at her. And Queen Vashti does what any of you women hopefully would do. She said, heck no. Be old drunk. I'm not coming out there. You and your drunk friends look at me. I didn't sign up for that. Well, Xerxes gets ticked about this, and he huddles up with his boys, right? He gets his posse together, and he says, well, guys, what are we going to do about this? Like, she said no. She's not going to come out here. She, she, she's not going to uh, do what I've told her to do. And so all his boys get together, and they come up with a plan, right? They, they say, you can't let her get away with this. Because in their minds, matter of fact, they say to him, Look, if you let her get away with this, like women everywhere are going to start doing stuff like that. Like our wives are going to start saying no. Like our wives are going to think that they can say things to us and they're, they're going to think that they can say no to us. We cannot let this happen. So you need to kick her out of here. You need to make a law that says Vashti cannot put her foot back in this palace and then here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out. We're going to find you somebody better. Like we're going to find somebody younger, somebody prettier, somebody thinner, got better hair, got better skin, got a better personality, dresses better. We're going to go find you somebody better. You kick her out of here. Now, pause for just a minute. One of the themes of Esther that we're going to come to over and over again is the theme be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. In, in this case, be careful who you listen to when you're angry. Be careful who you listen to when you're angry. Xerxes is angry. And he's got guys around him who want to feed that anger. Yeah, she did you wrong. You need to get rid of her. Verse 18 says, There will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
Women going to go crazy up in here if you let this happen. You got to do something. When you're angry, you want other people to be angry with you, don't you? I mean, you're just like me. And when you're mad, when you feel like somebody's disrespected you, somebody treated you badly, things didn't go your way, you want somebody who will be angry with you. Be careful who you listen to when you're angry because sometimes we don't need people to get angry with us. We need people to hose us down sometimes, right? Like, you need to calm down. You need to take a step back. Like, this is not as big a deal as you're making it, number one. And number two... You don't need to do anything now that you're going to regret later. When we're angry, we look for people who are going to say, no, you just need to tell them off. You just need to let it out. You just need to post on social media because that always fixes arguments, right? (laughs) Man, you just need to write something on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat. You need to do the whole thing and get back to them. Be careful who you listen to when you're angry. Another thing. Be careful who you listen to when everyone wants to please you. This is especially if you're in a position of leadership. Like if you're over some group, a large group, a small group. Be careful who you listen to when everybody wants to tell you what they think you want to hear. That's the situation Xerxes is in. They just want to tell him what he wants to hear because they want to stay in his favor. They want to make sure he still likes them. They want to stay in their position. And so they're just telling him what they think he wants them to tell him, which is a very dangerous position to be because you've got nobody telling you the truth at that point. You have nobody willing to say the hard part that you most need to hear because everybody's just telling you what you want to hear. Now, back to the story. I live with four women. I don't claim to understand women in any sense. But I think I understand women better than Xerxes' assistants do. Because they say in verse 20, kick her out, we're going to replace her, then... When the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realms, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. No, they won't. It's not, it's not like Xerxes is going to pass this law and all the women are going to go, Oh, we all need to respect our husbands now. That's not the way it works. Now look. I'm all for wives respecting their husbands and husbands respecting their wives. I'm all for that. But just saying it doesn't make it happen. Like just a law doesn't make it happen. You don't just have this edict and then everything gets straightened out. But the king doesn't. He sends out this notice at the end of chapter 1. Every man should be ruler over his own household. <laughs> like that's going to fix something, right? Every, I say it. Pause the story again. As a follower of God, here's the environment we stepped in. We stepped into this misogynistic, crazy leader, about to go off to war, kill a whole bunch of people. We stepped into this environment where God's people are. And so we have to ask the question, 
How, is, how does God's people live? How are we supposed to respond when we're in a setting like this? How are we supposed to live our lives and live out our faith when the culture that we're in doesn't respect what we believe or what we practice? That doesn't respect what we hold holy or sacred. That's the environment that they find themselves in. Back in Jerusalem, when they lived in Jerusalem, like everybody worshipped their God. Everybody had the same morals that they had. They didn't always live up to them, but they had the same idea of right and wrong, and this is good, and that's bad, and this is how everybody's supposed to live. They had, it was sort of the same thinking back in Jerusalem. Well, they're not back in Jerusalem anymore. They're in this setting that's the complete opposite of everything that they believe. And, and, and everything that they want to live out. Back when the Israelites were captured by the Babylonians, there was a prophet at the time. There's a guy by the name of Jeremiah. You may have heard of him. He wrote about that particular subject. Here's what Jeremiah said to the, the Jewish people as they were carried away into captivity. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So Jeremiah says, look, you're going to a place that doesn't believe the way you believe. You're going to a place, they don't think the same things that you think. They don't worship the way you do. They don't even worship the same God that you do. They don't care about your God. You're going into that place, and you know what you need to do when you get there? You need to live your life. Get a job. Buy a house. Plant a garden. Go about your life. Live out your faith, yes. But pray for the community that you're in. Pray for the leaders that you're under. Work for the prosperity of the city. He says, look, try to make things better. Try to do good things. Try to help. Jeremiah is not saying conform to the community, to the environment that you're in. Jeremiah's not saying sacrifice everything you believe because you're in a new culture. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, when you get there, live your life. Live out who you are. Be careful who you listen to is the theme. Be careful who you listen to when you're in a foreign land. When you're in a place that doesn't promote, accept your views, your opinions... Your beliefs, your conviction, be very careful who you listen to. Most of us, especially those of us who don't travel to foreign countries very often, we would not stop somebody on the corner and ask them where we should spend the night, right? We usually make those plans before we go. We usually find out, all right, I need to stay here, I need to stay there, I need to stay away from that part of town, and it should eat here, I need to stay away from this sort of place. We try to get all of that information. We're careful about who we listen to when we go somewhere we've never been before. We want to talk to somebody who actually knows and get good information 
from them. As followers of Christ, we increasingly live in an environment where, where our beliefs are not the dominant beliefs of the culture, where our convictions are not the dominant convictions of the culture, where, where even our belief in God, even our belief that Christ is the Savior of the world, even that is not only rejected, but sometimes criticized. We live in that sort of world. And in that world, you got to be careful who you're listening to. I don't know, I don't know if you realize it or not, but anybody can post on social media. Did you realize that? Like there's not an IQ test for getting a social media account. Like you don't have to pay, you don't have to pass like some I'm emotionally balanced quiz in order to get on social media. Anybody can post on social media. Anybody can write a blog. Do you know that? I mean, I write a blog. If, if, if I can do it, anybody can write a blog. All right, go to WordPress. I give it to you for free. You can write anything you want on it and promote it as your blog. Anybody can do that. Anybody can get a book published. Anybody can do a podcast. I'm not trying to make you cynical. Here's what I'm saying. What we need... In the world that we live in, just like the characters of this story needed, what we need is not, not more clever people. There's plenty of clever people. We don't even need more creative people, although I'm all for creativity. I love creativity. We need more discerning people today. We need people who can look at something, who can read something, and can tell the difference between real and fake. Right and wrong, truth and error. Be careful who you listen to. When you're in a place where not everybody adopts your convictions and your beliefs, we need more people who can discern. Oh, this is true. Oh, this is not true. This is right. This is... This is not right. And if that's not you, if if that's not where you are right now, find somebody who is discerning and become their friend. Right? Ask them to help you. Run things by them. Hey, I read this today. What do you think of this? We need discerning people. And we meet somebody like that in Esther chapter 2. Once Xerxes kind of sobers up, he misses his wife. And so his friends decide, all right, now's when we're going to go find you somebody else. So they have this, they have this beauty pageant, uh, this contest, this Persia's Got Talent thing, and they bring women in from all over the place, and they spend a year getting beauty treatments, like getting all gussied up and, and cleaned up before they do this sort of speed dating thing in front of the king. And then the king decides, this is going to be the one... For me. And, and it's at this point, as this is going on, that we meet one of the pivotal characters, maybe the pivotal character of the story. And it's not Esther. It's a guy by the name of Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin. And all throughout this story, Mordecai is the one who's giving advice. Mordecai is the one who's giving direction. Mordecai is the one who's nudging and sometimes pushing. 
Mordecai is the discerning one who's saying, you need to do this. Don't do this. You need to watch out for this. This is who you need to talk to. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther who we meet in verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman who was also known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So we meet Esther, beautiful young lady. She's taken in this roundup. I don't think she volunteered. I, I think she was compelled to go and participate in this Persia's Got Talent contest for the king to find his next wife. But we find out she, she doesn't have a mother or father. She's orphaned. She's adopted by her older cousin, Mordecai, who's protecting her and guiding her and giving her direction. And as the assistants are bringing people to the palace, as they're choosing who's going to be the next queen, this weird contest that we can't relate to, Esther's chosen. Esther's Picked. And even after that, Mordecai is still close by. He's sort of listening out, trying to find out what's going on and how he can help her and how he can give her direction. So she's chosen to replace Queen Vashti as the queen. And Xerxes throws this huge party for her, this huge banquet. He proclaims a holiday. Everybody's off work. It's a great day in the kingdom I love in Esther 2.18, it says, He distributed gifts with royal liberality. Like he distributed gifts. He gave everybody presents. It's like, I've got a new queen. Everything's great. I'm happy. Everybody gets a present. And what we realize early on in the story is, in spite of all the bad, and there's a lot of bad, in spite of customs and beliefs that, we find revolting the way women are treated, the way the king rules, the way decisions are made. All of this stuff that we find revolting and disgusting, and in spite of all the bad, there's hope that something good's starting to happen. That all is not lost. Here's, here's part of the message of Esther, is that even when everything is bad, God is still doing something beautiful in the bad. Even when everything else is bad, even when you look at the world and everything's awful and everything's bad, whether we see it or not, God's still doing something beautiful in the bad. An orphan girl's becoming queen. Because this is how God works. Not just 2,500 years ago, in your life and in my life. Even when everything's bad... God's doing something beautiful in the bad. Now, when it comes to bad, there are several ways we can respond to it. One is we can deny the bad. We can just say, oh, it's it's not happening. No, it's not that bad. I don't see it. I'm just going to focus on the positive. I'm not going to listen to that. Or or we can change our view on bad. We just decide, okay, well, that's not bad anymore. I used to think that was bad, but that's not bad anymore. And we can shift bad around so, that we, so we're able to deny it. We can live in denial about bad. Or we can focus on the bad, like all the time. It's terrible. It's awful. We're posting on social media. It's terrible. It's awful. Everything's falling apart. And we can, we can become consumed with the bad. 
focusing only on the bad. Or we can recognize that there's bad. But even in the bad, God's doing something beautiful. I'm not saying ignore the bad. I'm not saying pretend it's not bad. I'm not saying have kind of a Pollyanna view. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying bad doesn't win. No matter how bad bad is in your life or in the world, or Tuesday, no matter how bad bad is, (laughs) you just remember what Tuesday was. No matter how bad bad is, bad doesn't win. I mean, that's the message of the Bible. Over and over, the Bible keeps saying, yep, it's bad. Boy, it was bad. It was really bad. Guess what? Bad didn't win. The message, the gospel, is that bad doesn't win, right? Where sin abounded, one translation says, where sin just got worse and worse, grace was even more. Even in the bad, God's doing something beautiful. Now, here's the thing. Here's what we got to realize. This is the hard part. Often, when God does something beautiful, He he does it silently. God God doesn't always display, hey, just hang on because I'm doing this thing. And you're going to see it and it's going to be awesome. God, God rarely does that. Often... Things are happening that we don't see and we don't know about. I'm the, maybe I've told you this before, I'm the surprise planner in our family. Like one of my great joys is planning things that nobody else in our family knows about and then saying, hey, in two weeks, we're going out on this night. I'm not going to tell you what we're going to do. You need to wear this. This is what time we're leaving. Be ready. Man, I love, I love planning surprises for my family, for my girls, and for my wife. And then we go and we have great time. I think God's a little bit like that. I think God's sort of in his sovereignty and in his providence. I think God enjoys saying, look, I just want you to be faithful. I just want you to walk with me. And I'm not going to tell you what's happening, but something's happening. And when I get you there, you're going to realize that it happened. This is what we find in the book of Esther. Here's one one of the challenges of Esther. God is never mentioned in this book. They don't refer to him. He doesn't speak anything. They don't specifically pray to him, although they talk about fasting and we can assume prayer was a part of that. There's no specific prayer. God is never mentioned. That's one of the reasons throughout history, some people have said, hey, you don't need to put that book. That book shouldn't have even been in the Bible. They don't ever mention God. But here's the thing. Just because we don't see God and just because we don't hear God doesn't mean God's not working. What Esther reveals to us is that in the worst of our circumstances, in the worst of our environment, even when we don't hear Him and see Him in the wings, He's working. Behind the curtain, in the shadows, he's working. He's doing something. And you don't know it yet, and you don't see it yet, but he's working. Eugene Peterson wrote the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Peterson writes, 
God works patiently and deeply, but often in hidden ways in the mess of our humanity and history. God works patiently and deeply, but often in hidden ways in the mess of our humanity and history. In Esther's story, just like in your story, there's periods where it seems like God's just not there. Where are you? Do you see what's going on? Do you, do you see what's happening? Do you, do you see who the candidates are for president? I'm going to miss being able to make jokes about that, right? Do you, do you see? Do you know what's happening? I mean, you feel this distance, this absence. And, and then this story comes along where God never speaks. But in every sentence, in every verse, in every chapter, God's hand of providence is moving to bring something beautiful out of something bad. Every page, every page of your life, every twist and turn, The ones where you worship and you just know, boy, God's here. God, I feel you. In those weeks or months or years of our life where we wonder, God, where are you? Even in those moments, God's at work moving and shaping and directing. And maybe today, maybe you don't hear him as clearly as you want to hear him. He's at work. He's directing. For if an orphan can become a queen... Anything's possible. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this really old story about a really crazy, messed up place. A place that none of us would want to live. And people were treated in ways they should never be treated. And in the middle of that, Unseen and unheard, an orphan girl was becoming queen. Unseen and unheard, you are at work. And in the lives of every person sitting here, whether they've acknowledged you as their Savior or not, whether they've received Christ into their life or not, every person sitting here, you're moving them, you're directing All all in an effort to make something beautiful out of something bad. To bring salvation in spite of our sin. To bring eternal life in spite of our rejection of you. For into a world full of sin, you sent your son to live and die for us. Thank you. That even in the bad, You're working the beautiful. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.